Can you see the pictures? Good. You're going to like this story. The Israelites were still at war with the Philistines. The two armies were camped on opposite slopes of the hills with a valley between them. And Jesse's three oldest sons were in Saul's army. And Jesse was worried about them. David, he called one day, go to the battlefront and see if your brothers are all right. Here is some fresh bread for them and take these farm cheeses as a present for their officers. Be careful and hurry back. When David arrived and went to look for his brothers, he found that both sides were lined up ready for battle. Suddenly, the noise and the chatter died down and everyone was quiet. Then the thunder of a mighty voice broke the silence. David looked across the valley and the largest man he had ever seen was striding slowly forward. He was fully armed for battle. Come on, you Israelites, the huge man thundered. Pick a champion to fight me. If he wins, we will serve you. But if I win, you will be our slaves. Who does he think he is, David asked. That's Goliath, the soldiers exclaimed eagerly. He comes out night and evening with his terrible challenge, and we are all terrified. Sure enough, the Israelite soldiers were slinking away to their tents, and then David's brothers saw him. What are you doing here? You should be looking after those sheep of yours and minding your own business. I only asked what was happening, David protested, no one has any right to challenge God's people like that. Goliath is not stronger than our God. Well, someone told Saul about the young man who was talking so bravely, and the king wanted to meet him. Your majesty, David said to Saul, no one need fear this Philistine. I will fight him. You, Saul answered, Amazed? You're not much more than a lad. Goliath is a professional soldier. What makes you think you could win? God is on our side, David answered confidently. I may be young, but I have had good practice as a shepherd. With God's help, I have killed lions and bears when they have attacked my sheep. God will help me now. Very well, Saul agreed. You shall fight Goliath, and may God go with you. Saul looked David up and down. He must be properly protected. So Saul put his own bronze helmet on David's head and gave him his heavy cast of armor to put on. But when David strapped on the big sword, too, he could hardly move. It's no good, he said breathlessly. I'm not a soldier, and I can't fight like one. I must use the weapons I know and trust. Saul watched uneasily as David ran down to the nearby stream and carefully chose five smooth pebbles from the water. He put them in his bag and checked his leather sling. Then he went forward to meet the Philistine champion, carrying his shepherd's stick. Goliath advanced, calling out his challenge, but instead of the usual retreating figures of the terrified Israelites, he saw a man coming to meet him. 
when he made out David's slight, unarmed figure, he was filled with scorn and anger. How dare you come to fight me, he roared. What's that stick for? Do you think I'm a dog? Get closer and I'll give your dead body to the birds to pet. Then he began to curse David. You fight against God with your sword and spear and your great strength, David called out boldly. But I come in the name of our God. You okay? He is stronger than any champion. You have cursed him, but he will give me victory so that all may know that he is the God. Then David ran towards Goliath. He took one pebble from the bag and fitted it into his sling. With skill, he swung it around his head and aimed. The stone flew with deadly speed and hit Goliath in the middle of his forehead, just like this. Stunned, Goliath fell to the ground. His huge body sprawled senseless. David ran up, seized Goliath's own sword, and killed him with it. Their mighty champion was dead. The Philistines fled in terror from the battlefield. Is that a good story? Yeah, I think so too. Thank you so much, Sandra Blackmore, and thank you, Freddie, for coming up. Uh, that is, I think, every young boy's favorite Bible story. Do you guys want to know the real story behind it? Because we, started, we think of these as just kids' stories. Um, the real story is that the Philistines were a big deal. Uh, if we can get it up on the screen here, I'll show you something. 1200 BC, before Athens and Sparta, there was a uh, nation called Mycenae, and they basically had all of Greece. Uh, but all of a sudden, a whole bunch of barbarians came from Europe, and they, th they decided that it was time to leave uh, ancient Greece and hit the, hit the seas. They were like the Vikings of 1200 BC. So they got on their boats, and they went over here to the Hittite Empire, and they hit the Hittite Empire so hard that the empire fell shortly thereafter. And a very interesting thing happened because it was the Bronze Age, and there was only one civilization in the entire world that had figured out iron. That was the Hittites. So they got iron in the Bronze Age. It's like having a tank when everyone else has horses. And uh, then they loaded up again, and they said, let's go for the richest empire there is. They went to Egypt. And you know, these guys almost took Egypt. Pharaoh Ramses III had to rally his entire empire and just outnumber the invaders. And he made a big monument about it and said, hey, we defeated the sea peoples. So these mighty sea peoples decided that they would just park themselves right here on the border of Egypt and uh, take over the main trade route that goes from Asia to Africa, sit there, collect the wealth, and be incredibly strong with a five-state coalition with superior weaponry, and they subjected this whole area for a hundred years. Many nations under them, one of them being the little nation of Israel that was just starting out. Israel was fighting for its existence, guys. There was an oppressive power that was bearing down upon them. God had great dreams for Israel that he would bless them in this promised land and then use them to 
show the whole world who he was. And the Philistines were destroying these dreams. So I want you to picture what, these, what was going on. I want you to see two hills. On the one hill, we'll start here. On the one hill is the Philistine army. They're in rank. They have armor. They have bronze weapons and even iron. They are ferocious killers and professionals at it. On the other hill, I want you to picture a bunch of shepherds and farmers with farm implements, clubs, inferior weapons. And the only people that have any decent weapons on this hill are King Saul and his son, uh, Jonathan, who is normally very brave. But today, even the brave are afraid. Because the mightiest military machine of the time has just walked out onto the battlefield. It is a nine and a half foot tall warrior. He can kill you from a long ways away with a bronze javelin. As soon as you think you're within range, he's already skewered you with his giant spear with an iron tip that's going to go right through your little sad bronze or, or uh, leather armor. And if you were lucky enough to get close, he's going to swing a sword like a scythe and cut you right in two. He is incredibly well protected because there's another person that stands in front of him holding a great big wall shield that will uh, deflect any projectiles. He's got Egyptian-style bronze uh, uh, scale mail armor on that goes all the way down to here. Then he's got... Greek-style bronze greaves. No one had even seen that in the Middle East, and it's because of where they came from that they had this technology covering his legs. Then he had a big Assyrian-style war helmet on his head, and you can tell all this by the words that are used in the background. In fact, scholars used to say there is no Goliath. It's like he had all the best weapons of all the enemies of Israel. I showed you the history. That's because they had fought all those enemies. Goliath was the real deal. Victory against him was unimaginable. Today I want to talk to you about charging the darkness. Acting like God is almighty. You see, Goliath came out and he said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man that he'll come down and we'll fight. This was a concept the Israelites weren't used to. It's a Greek concept. It's the idea that two champions would come out, and then instead of everybody killing everybody, we'll just let those two try to kill each other, and then we'll accept the verdict based on that. There is a certain attraction to it, though, especially if you're King Saul, because although there's a monster of a man down there, he's asking for a champion. And so Saul kind of regally goes, hey, I'll give a great reward to the person that will come out and fight this guy. But the whole Israelite army is thinking in the back of their heads, but you don't say certain things to the king. Why aren't you going, Saul? You're the tallest and mightiest among us. You have the best weaponry. You're an experienced warrior. Why aren't you going? But Saul had established a pattern in his own spiritual life of continual disobedience to God. And he knew that when he stepped out on the battlefield, God didn't go with him anymore. He was a spiritually compromised man. What is the darkness today that God calls us to face? It's not a Philistine army. And uh, we're not supposed to go out and annihilate all the enemies of God in some big pitched battle. 
Because as Jesus showed us in the Bible, as God continued to unfold his character and his plans and his full purposes for us as human beings, he showed us that we are actually to love our enemies. That we're supposed to be like him when he went to the cross and died for his enemies with the words, Father, forgive them, on his lips. Jesus was relentlessly for people. He was never against people. And if you find yourself as a Christian against people, you've become misdirected in your target. Jesus said that there is really only one enemy that we face in this world today, and his name is Satan. He called him the prince of this world. Not because Satan has any inherent right to the world or is in any way equal in power to God, but because when people turn away from worshiping God, they by default end up worshiping Satan. So if you're going to worship the king, great. But if you're not going to worship the king, the prince gets you. This prince is not all powerful. So he uses the powers of this world to create a conspiracy of all conspiracies. It's a satanic conspiracy that uses all the powers of the world. If you look at Revelation, it unveils this satanic conspiracy going on. It says, look, Satan's going to be like a beast. He's going to use political power and corrupt it whenever he can and use it to oppress people and limit the church in what it can do and distract people from God. He said Satan is also like a false prophet who's going to go out there and tell the people what they want to hear. But it won't be what they need to hear. Satan is also like a great prostitute that offers all kinds of luxuries and pleasures to good people to get them distracted from what really matters and to corrupt them by those things. These are the forces that are at work in our world today. Right now, these forces are active in your life. The great prostitute is marketing you to death right now. Every moment you are being peppered with advertisements. And if you won't watch the ads, they'll embed the ads in the music or in the show, won't they? Convincing you that you need more stuff, your happiness is tied to it, and that you're never going to be happy until you have this stuff. So what do we do? We pursue it. We make our career our God. And we fill our lives trying to get success. And there's nothing wrong with the success until you come to a point where all of a sudden God says, can I use you? And the answer becomes, actually, I'm kind of busy. You see, you cannot invest your life in other people if you've already spent it. If marketers cannot reach you just through pure materialism, they'll tie the materialism with your sexuality. They'll try to convince you to buy the sexy bubble gum and the sexy toothpaste because I don't know whatever was sexy about toothpaste or any other thing that they tie to it, but they will tie the two together and then try to get you thinking sexually all the time and then the great prostitute will do what the great prostitute does and try to make you a compulsive consumer of sex. This is going on right now in our society in a way where people don't even give a second thought to it. And it is going on in our church, I dare say, with the majority of the church, particularly the men, and a strong minority of women 
This, of course, does exactly to us what Saul's habitual disobedience did to him. It makes us unable to step out and charge the darkness when the time comes. Because we can't feel God's presence. Because we're filled with doubts that don't have anything to do with God and everything to do with our own guilt. And we are not ready to fight. Satan loves to isolate us. He loves to heap despair on us. And you might not even identify with the first two, but you just feel this weight of despair that comes down on you. I don't think we've ever been at a time in history when more people are despairing. Teachers tell me that almost all the children in their classes are on medication of one kind or another. And you know, medication is a great thing, isn't it? Except for one problem. If everybody's sick, is that right? If everyone's on medication, then we must have a societal problem. And we're getting glimpses of that societal problem in the anger and despair that's spilling out. In the United States, we are seeing it spill out in racism because someone gave it a narrative and gave it a target and said, here's what's wrong. And as Christians, we only have one narrative. It's the holy word of God. And we only have one target. It's Satan. And that's where we need to be. That is the darkness that lies over our world. We need to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can step out for battle. Now, we've talked about Goliath. Now I can almost hear God saying to me, now tell them about David. God loved David. Because when David showed up on the scene, he, got, he saw a problem right away and started talking like it could be fixed. And, and his brother said, you're so conceited, David. But you know what David actually was? He was anointed with the power of God's spirit and he was courageous. Courageously conceited, I guess we could say. And when he hears the taunts from Goliath, he does not take them as taunts just against a ragged army or a so-so church. He takes it as taunts against the reputation of the Lord God Almighty. He says, you are insulting Yahweh himself. You're picking a fight with God, Goliath. And he saw things so differently. In fact, I think he noticed that there was two armies on two hills, and even though the Israelites were scared, I, he didn't notice that the Philistines were charging forward either because they'd heard about Yahweh. And so had, G and so had uh, David. He had heard about the mighty acts of Yahweh. He had a life that was soaked in the history of his people. He knew that God had freed his people from Egypt. He had poured out ten plagues judging that nation that had enslaved the people. He had opened up the Red Sea in front of them when they were being pursued by Pharaoh and his armies. And he had closed the Red Sea on them again. David knew about Joshua, who came up against the impregnable walls of Jericho, and then Yahweh made the walls fall down. He knew about Deborah, a woman of real faith and action, and how God had delivered Israel through her. And so these stories were in David's heart. But there was another set of stories that was also in his heart, it was his own stories with God. 
So when David goes to King Saul and says, I'm going to go against that giant. Saul goes, what makes you think you could do that? And he says, when I was a shepherd a few years ago, because these guys only like 15 years old teens. He's only about 15 years old. When I was a young 12-year-old and 13-year-old, I was doing my job as a shepherd and a lion came and attacked and I prayed to God and he made me so strong, I went and I grabbed that lion and ripped the sheep out of its mouth and then clubbed it with my bare hands. And the same thing happened with a bear. So David had this track record. He had these great stories of God from the history of God's people. He had his own present experience of what God was doing in his life and the two fueled him and fused together to get him ready to charge the darkness. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the great stories of God in the Bible? Or are they just irrelevant legends that never really happened and they don't impact today? I can probably tell by the amount of time that you read them to your children whether you believe them or not. I remember my parents did that for me as a child, reading these Bible stories, and they greatly impacted my view of what God, who God was and what he could actually do. Are we imparting these great stories of God to our children? Our Freddies? If we can soak ourselves again in those great stories of God, and they can grab our souls and fill us with strength again, then we might also be able to take our stories of what God has done in our lives, fuse the two together like David did, and find the kind of faith that is truly ferocious. I talked to a couple people this week, and I said, can I share a little bit of your story? The first person I talked to was John Westrup. And you guys might be, maybe saw him up here on the platform a while ago uh, because he was leading a small team to Haiti in, in, uh, in May. And so you remember John? Well, John's story started out a couple years ago when he was on his first Haiti missions trip. And he felt for the very first time in his life led to pray for something specific. He also knew that God wanted to pray for something. Weird. Never happened before. So he prayed, God, I feel you're telling me to pray for all our electrical supplies to be donated. So here goes nothing. I'm praying for it. Amen. Wednesday night. Thursday morning, he gets a text from another guy in the team who says, I just went into an electrical supplier and he offered to donate all the supplies we could carry. <laughs> Act of faith number one in John's life. While John is in Haiti on the missions trip, he feels God saying, John, I need to use you more in Haiti. But John said, God, you know very well that I shouldn't even be here on this trip because I have sky-high blood pressure that the doctors are not able to regulate, and my life will probably not even go to the natural length of a life. How can I come and serve you more in Haiti? But he felt led. Pray. He prayed for healing. And as soon as he got home, his doctor called him and said, you know, John, I was just looking over your files again, just had another thought, and I saw a really weird irregularity. It seems you might have a gland problem. They got him in. It was a gland problem. They took the gland out. Boom. John was 100% healed. No blood pressure problem. Nothing at all to prevent him from going to Haiti and doing these things. John is a real guy. 
He's not Superman. He's just like you, but God's been building his faith. And when he got back from Haiti the last time, he said to me something that actually pushed my faith a little bit. He said, Nathan, I feel like God's telling me to quit my job. I said, well, I feel like that some days too. <laughs> not this job, previous job. This job I love. And I said, really? He goes, well, you know, my wife has a good job. And I just feel like God is calling me because my kids are, me being away made me realize my kids really need me right now. And he said, I just feel like God's telling me. And John's not a lazy guy. He's industrious. He quit that job, and within two weeks, he got a part-time job that came to him without asking that when he took the money from the part-time job, factored in that he's not paying for daycare, they had more money at the end of the month. Come on. You see, God can do anything. Satan gives us all these false dichotomies. Well, you could do this, but you have to do this. And God says, let me take care of that. If you want to really seek me first and put the kingdom of God first, I'll make a way for you. Each miracle fueled the faith for the next miracle. When we take that and we combine it with the stories of God that we see, we, we start to think, maybe God is like Jesus who went around healing people. Another person that was up on this platform recently was Rod Wasson. And he was talking about the horrible experience of watching his wife waste away with really no hope in sight. Rod, are you out here? Rod, how is your wife today? She's doing fantastic. Tony, we are so glad what God has done in your life. And we watched that, Rod. You shared right in the crux of faith when it was really tough on that. And you know, it's not like God comes and heals everybody. We also witnessed Siggy McEachern, who recently died from cancer. But you know, if you were with Siggy, you would know that God was there in the most amazing, fantastic way, giving peace and joy and using that experience. It's just tough with, it's got to be tough to be Satan because he just can't win. No matter what happens to Christians, they seem to come out triumphant. Let me give you another example, guys, because we need to be like David. We need to have these stories of faith, and they need to fuel our actions of faith so more stories of faith can happen. Let me tell you what I've seen in the last nine days. A couple things I've been involved in and a couple things I just heard about. At the Leadership Summit last week, I bumped into an old friend. I said, hey, how you been? I haven't talked to you in about ten years. And she goes, actually, to be honest with you, my husband and I just about broke up in the last year or so. We were about to lose our house. We had no money. She said, but God is so good. And I hadn't talked to her in ten years. I go, I know he is. She goes, we were looking through the papers for the ownership of the house that we were going to lose, and in there was a check for several thousand dollars that had been misplaced, some sort of refund or difference from the sale of the last house and the new one. Right when we needed it, there was the, there was the money. I said, isn't God good? Doesn't he take care of us? And then I got a very abnormal call on Sunday afternoon uh, from a, or a contact from a person that I could tell from that contact was taking his life. And I've got permission from him to share this, although not his name. And so I tore over his house, pounded on that door, thinking he's probably not even here, he's probably somewhere else. And that person opened the door, having just consumed 150 heavy narcotic pills. 40 pills would normally kill a person. 
And this person wasn't going to budge, was intent on following through. And so I did the only thing I know how to do, and that's kind of talk a lot. <laughs> and so I just kept talking for a couple hours with this guy. And then finally I said, what are we going to do, though? And this guy who is still under the influence of 150 narcotic pills, but I can see just enough lucidity that he, I think I'm talking to him and not the pills, says, you know what? If I do want to live again, I want to live again for real. You take me right now with a couple friends and you go baptize me in this place that means something to me. If you really care about me right now, you'll do that. Well, I feel like i got a gun to my head. But I said, God, what do you think? He says, that's a crazy idea. Go for it. And so we went out and we baptized this guy. We prayed over him. He gave his whole life to Jesus, even while still under the influence. And this is the crazy thing. We put glassy eyes down under the water, and when we, he came up, he was straight. 100% straight. And he's going, oh my goodness, I can feel again. I never even felt like this as a kid. And I've been watching him the whole week. A new baby in Christ, brand new. Death got robbed, and new life came out. And even on Friday... I had a meeting with someone from the government, and all I can tell you from that is that I found the greatest ally for our church going forward in certain endeavors that you would ever imagine, and I can't believe it was even there, but God is already going before us, preparing the way. Guys, I'm telling you, we need to build this faith up. We need to take these stories like David did so that when there is a giant and there is darkness. We don't run in fear. We see opportunity for the Lord God Almighty to show up. Holy, 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 trustworthy, who's going to be there for us. David, poor David, 15 years old. He can't even put on the armor. It doesn't fit. He doesn't know how to swing a sword yet, although he will someday. But that day, all he had was a sling and a shepherd's staff. And he went out with that. 100% inadequate, but courageously conceited in his God. He said to Goliath, who just said, come at me, little boy, I'm going to feed you to the animals. David said, you are coming at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. I love that word, almighty. The old King James says, Lord of hosts. I would say Lord of the horde because it rhymes. But it says that God has so much power on his side that he makes Genghis Khan look like a joke. It says that even when we charge the darkness and we are totally exposed from a human point of view like David was, we are never more spiritually powerful and protected than that moment. Because we've got Yahweh, who is a warrior, leading that charge. We were flanked by his mighty angels on either side. And we are filled with the mighty Ruach, spirit of God, who gives life and power to those who will serve him. Man, we are not outnumbered. We have the Lord of hosts with us. And with that in mind, David said, This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hands, Goliath. And I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This day I'll give the whole Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. We have such opportunities like that today, my friends. 
12 years ago, in this church, the youth pastor did something crazy. He took a bunch of grade 11s and 12s, I think, about 15 people, and he said, let's go on a little trip. We'll go to Cambodia. Anyone heard of the Killing Fields, Khmer Rouge? Great place to take a bunch of teens, right? But they went there, and that trip phenomenally changed many of those, guys, many of those uh, young men and women. Changed their career paths. It birthed our Congo mission later, which has been really successful. I'd love to have a report for you on that sometime. And while they were there, these teens went to a place that was a coffee shop and a, a place where uh, crafts were made. And all the people working in this shop, most of them were young girls. Every one of them had been taken from the sex industry as children and rehabilitated. This inspired our teens so much that when they came home, they actually organized an assembly at McNaughton High. They somehow got the school to let them do an assembly to raise money for IJM, International Justice Mission, which was running this, a Christian organization. They raised money at McNaughton High School so they could have enough money to rehabilitate and free one girl. And they sent it. Pretty amazing. Well, I heard the rest of the story last week at the Leadership Summit because the final speaker was Gary Hogan, who is the founder of International Justice Mission. And he says, you know, 12 years ago, we had just started out in Cambodia, so our team was there just at the beginning. And we didn't have any resources. In the, the laws were inadequate in the country. You could buy children. 30% of the prostitutes on the streets, and there was tons of them, were children. This was an unimaginable evil, bringing in tons of revenue for gangs that were very powerful. And IGM said, okay, we're going to try. And you know what? Somehow, like David against Goliath, they did it. They did it. They rescued girls. They got churches, the few churches in, in Cambodia, not many of them, it's a Buddhist country, got them to open up rehabilitation centers. And then they started working with the police because they knew who all the bad guys were. And then they brought in best practices from other places in the world and said, hey, this is how you prosecute this. And then even the government got wind of it and said, what do we have to do to change our laws in Cambodia? And so now, in Cambodia, if you go on the streets, 2% of the prostitutes, if you really look, are underage. From 30% to 2%. Christianity Today had a headline that says, sex industry collapsing in Cambodia, church thriving. This is what God does. That's a real change. And I want to say to each one of the teens that was there at the start, did you ever think God would win that? But he did, and you got to be a part of it. So today, right here in Moncton, did you know that there are girls that are 13 and 14 on our streets and on sites that are being trafficked for sex? It happens here. Pimps act like boyfriends, and they go into middle schools, and they look for the girls and some of the LBGT boys and stuff like that that have the feel of sexual hurt already in their lives. They boyfriend them, make them believe there's a better future, and if somehow if there was just some way we could get some money together, maybe I'll go sell some drugs. What could you do to earn some money? And they take this dream, and they ruin the real dreams for that girl. 
and she becomes a prostitute. Hay is a helping exploited youth is a is a institution that got started a year ago down in Halifax, and they're trying to stop this stuff. And they say that even in Angie's, there's underage girls there. They're being groomed in Moncton, our city. And then they get shipped across the country under the control of a pimp who won't let his $250,000 a year commodity out of his sight. Guys, wouldn't God call us to charge that darkness? Are you ready to? There's more darkness than that. Think of our schools. Have you talked to a teacher recently? There's darkness and despair. The kids are more troubled than they've ever been. The teachers don't know what to do. And although the school system technically wants to separate church and state, they've never needed the church so much. Are there any people here that are courageous enough and creative enough to find ways to get over that wall of separation and bring hope back in there? And what about what we've seen in the United States with the racism and everything? I know I posted something on Facebook that said, that's horrible. I'm sure you did too. But I don't think our Facebook posts are enough. I think it's action. I think that if a whole bunch of immigrants comes out of the United States all of a sudden, are they going to find champions here for them that will help them? And the ones that we have right now in our community already, so many, are they finding people that are like God? Because it says that God loves the foreigner and provides food and clothing for him. And he says, you are to love the foreigner the way that you wish you had been loved when you were a foreigner in Egypt. So these are the darknesses that we have in our city. And we need to do something about it. How many of you have been to the CN Tower? It's 1,122 feet up, and it's really nice. You're looking out, and you're going, what a great view. And then all of a sudden, you go, <gasps> because there's a glass floor. And I don't know about you, but when I do this, and it's 1,122 feet down, every cell in my body goes, ah, die. So I go like this. I go, and I put a foot on, and my wife, Jen, is beside me, and she goes, And she starts dancing on it. And I'm going, oh, 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 get off the glass. Get off the glass. But we need to have that kind of thousand-foot faith. That no matter how big the challenge is, no matter what it is that God's calling us to, we trust that God is stable. That it's not going to give way beneath our feet that we can do anything he calls us to do with that kind of faith. David had that kind of faith. And so, as Goliath taunted David and moved towards him, David fitted that stone and he surprised Goliath very badly because he charged that Goliath right out of, just, just charged this little boy and he slung that stone with all his might and somehow it went past the wall shield. It wasn't in position. Somehow a huge helmet was a little bit out of place and that rock hit him right between the eyes and down the giant fell. Down he came. And that is what can happen, guys. That is what can happen with real faith. And the whole army surged forward. All of a sudden, everybody had faith. 
and they surged forward and they routed the Philistines and won a huge victory. I'd invite you to stand right now, guys. I'm asking you if you're ready to stand up as a church, to surge forward as one. I'm asking you if you're done with your darkness. If Satan brainwashed you into living for stuff and success over the kingdom of God, it's time for that giant to fall today, isn't it? It's time to stop wasting your life. If Satan has infected you with the epidemic of our times, with pornography and sexual sin in your life, it is time for that giant to fall. It is time for no more Saul's who can't go out in the battlefield, but for David's that are full of an open, free faith in God. And so it's time for you to take all the steps necessary to beat that giant. You're going to need people around you. You're going to need to confess to a pastor, to some other people. You're going to find support. God knows you've been trying, and if you could have done it by yourself, you would have done it already. So it's time for that giant to fall. And it's time for us that have been filled with despair, with a reactionary, negative attitude about what's going on in the world and what the potential is, to say, no, we don't serve a God like that. We serve a God who makes the giants fall. We serve a God who brings new life and new hope to every situation. Would you step forward for that? And what I'm looking for here this morning is for some people to come down to the front. They're going to say, I'm not here to consult with others about what needs to be done. I'm not here to just lend a hand now and again. I am willing to be a champion. A champion for girls in Moncton that need your help. And join with other churches that are actually getting a vision for this. It's not gonna be just us. It's gonna be something in the whole community. We need some champions that say, I'll take the risk. Gary Hogan says it's awful hard to lead forward with a great dream of God's love if you're in the bunker of fear. You need to step forward and say, I will be bold in that. We need some champions for our schools that will say, I'm going to invest in that. I'm making room in my life. I'm going to invest in that and see that kids in this community have a chance for a great love and have a, a great life and have a chance to see the love of Jesus. And we need champions for immigrants who will recognize that what has happened to us is the greatest missionary opportunity of our times. Because people from closed countries have come into the openness of Jesus Christ, into the openness of the freedom of Canada, and you can love on them, and then you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of those people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to get so saved, so full of God, that they're going to say, I came to Canada to be an engineer, but I'm going to go back to where I came from and take the good news of Jesus Christ, and you will have the most effective missionaries the world has ever seen. So I'm asking today simply for champions, thousand-foot faith champions, conceited about God, who are willing to let him take their faith to the next level, they're willing to get alongside hurt and need and see if God shows up, because man, does he ever show up if you'll do that. As the band begins to sing, I invite you to come forward to the front and stand. And I don't expect a whole ton of people to come to the front and stand. That'd be cool. But if a few champions would step out that are really making a decision today to be done with their own darkness and pursue the darkness of Satan, to go on the offense for God and get off the defense, then that would be a success. So let me pray for you. Father God, I see a church rising up. 
I see an army getting out of their armchairs. I see a change. I see Christians not being taken captive by their culture, but changing the culture. I see a whole new environment being created, Father, where you are doing miraculous, amazing things, where your love is poured out, where when the needs are there, that you show up. Oh, Father, come now in the name of Jesus and raise up your people to charge the darkness like they actually believe that you are almighty. <laughs>